Okay, welcome to the workshop, Long Timers Staying Stops. My name is Kortha and I'm a compulsive overeater and the moderator for this session. Hi. Help us preserve the cherished tradition of anonymity by refraining from taking pictures in this or any other meeting room. The format for this session is a reading to speakers and ask it basket questions. A basket with paper and pencil will be circulated for you to write any questions you may have for the speakers. Please specify whom your question is for. Okay, now I'm going to read from the big book, pages 32 and 33. It's just the highlighted section here. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking or overeating. He was very nervous in the morning after these bouts and quieted himself with more food or alcohol. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw that he would get nowhere if he drank or compulsively ate at all. Once he started, he had no control whatever. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another compulsive bite. An exceptional man, he remained bone dry, or compulsively abstaining, or abstaining, sorry, for 25 years and retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. Then he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic or compulsive overeater has done, that his long period of uh, abstinence and self-discipline had qualified him to eat or compulsively eat as other men. Out came his carpet slippers and a bottle or haagen in our case. <laughs> in two months, he was in a hospital puzzled and humiliated. He tried to regulate his compulsive overeating for a while, making several trips to the hospital meantime. Then, gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal. Every attempt failed. Though a robust man at retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. This case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we remain um, abstaining for a long stretch, we could therefore eat normally. But here is a man who at 55 years found he was just where he had left off at 30. Uh, this is in quotes, so um, let's see. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Quote, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Unquote. Commencing to drink or compulsively overeat after a period of abstaining, we are in a short time as bad as ever. If we are planning to stop compulsively overeating, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to compulsively overeating or to food. Okay. Our first speaker is... Um, Pat D. from Torrance, and she will speak for 25 minutes. Hi, my name is Pat. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, when Nita asked me to do this, I said, you know, yes, I need to give service. And, and 
My sky, you know, I hate to stick to topics, so I really have, but I will. I'll go do my best. <laughs> Defiance is the outstanding characteristic of every compulsive overeater. Um, I've been abstaining now for 25 years through the grace of God and the 12 steps. My top weight was 230 pounds, and this program saved my life. I just want to preface it all with that. Um, this is a miracle, and I, I never doubt that. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit of what it was like, just kind of, you'll know the background a little bit, but it'll lead up to, you know, staying stopped. And um, as, as a child, from seven years old on, I was a very fat child, and food was my friend. Food took care of everything. It, um, it, it soothed my wounded pride because it's amazing. My, my pride was wounded all the time. You know, that sensitivity that seems to be born in most, you know, most compulsive overeaters, it was just so deep within me. I remember even feeling upset when somebody else was reprimanded. You know, it was just, it was just part of the, my personality, the way I was. And, and so I ate myself into um, obesity at a very, very young age and stayed that way. Um, when I show my pictures when I leave and speak at meetings, um, I yo-yoed quite a lot. Once I get into my, uh, it went up gradually and, and pretty steadily actually, until I was in my uh, 20s. But from then on, uh, it, there's a lot of yo-yoing that went on. I did go on diets when I was a child, and um, by that I mean a teenager, not a child. And, you know, the, the worst one I went on was one that we used to take a tablespoon of cooking oil before you ate, and that was supposed to curb your appetite. Well, you wanted to throw up, let's face it. And bulimia has not been the way I've done this, you know, this program, uh, on my diseases, rather, yet. I always say yet. It hasn't been something that I've done. Um, but I just did that a few times, and then I got really tired of that, and I let that go. And then went on to um, the regular diets, the doctor's directed diets and that kind of thing. I didn't do the shots. I hate needles. Um, I tried pills once and I was tap dancing on the ceiling, so I didn't try that again. I don't like, you know, to be out of control. I love to be in control, so uh, that wasn't for me. And so I did what the doctor said and I would lose, you know, some weight and then I'd gain it again and then gain more and more. Um, to kind of speed up, though, um, when I married my husband, I weighed 188 no, I think I lost them. I was 188 when he met me. I was 175 when we got married. I was in love, so therefore I lost weight. And then we did a geographic. We moved from Rhode Island, which is where I'm from, to the uh, West Coast. We were stationed at a naval base in Fallon, Nevada, and I lost weight. And you can see that, you know, they up and down. Well, you can't see that through the microphone, can you? So anyway, I talk with my hands. My ancestry is Portuguese, so you'll just have to understand. I'll try and speak into the microphone instead of just showing my hands. Um, anyway, um, it got to a point, though, that it talks about in the big book. With that yo-yoing back and forth, my health was really suffering. I had stroke-level blood, uh, high blood pressure from the age of 12. And the only reason I wasn't hospitalized was that I was so young, and so I had lost weight, and it went down. But I was, you know, getting larger and larger and larger, and the blood pressure was going up. And so the doctor, you know, did all the tests on me, and he said, well, it's strictly obesity, you know, and hypertension, obesity, from obesity. And he said, you know, with the weight loss, it will come go down. So anyway... Um, as I was saying earlier, I reached the point I talked about in the big book where I couldn't stop, though. I was eating. I could no longer go down and do the yo-yoing. I was eating things I hated, um, and, and I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop. 
Uh, and one day, um, I was by myself. I wasn't working at that time. And, you know, I went into my bedroom and I got on my knees and I cried and I prayed and I said, God, please help me. I can't stop. Am I trying to kill myself? And I can't do it. And, and I got up, and it always gives me chills when I say that, because I got up from my knees, and I went about my business eating more, of course, but within a week's time, a dear friend of mine who used to do my hair at that time introduced me to the program of Overeaters Anonymous. And she took me to my first meeting in San Diego. I was, we lived in Chula Vista at that time, and she took me to this huge meeting. It was maybe two, three hundred people. It was, a, in fact, one of the ladies who's here and was one of our speakers this weekend was at that meeting, and she's still abstaining and longtime member of this program. And anyway, um, I sat. They said the newcomer should sit in the front row, and I did. And um, the only thing I listened to was one day at a time. One day at a time, I could do this. Whatever these people were doing in this room. And, and I found hope in that meeting, and I kept doing it. And something happened when I left that meeting uh, that had never happened before. Um, I didn't eat. I left there, and I did not eat. I went home. Um, I went to bed that night, and I didn't eat. And they suggested that we get a sponsor. And they said, go to eight meetings. God knows where they came up with that number. But they said, go to eight meetings, and then pick someone that you relate to to be your sponsor. Well, I knew, you know, that I needed someone right away. I needed guidance. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I didn't know anything about steps. I could have cared less in those days because I didn't know what the steps were. I had no connection with Alcoholics Anonymous or any of the other 12-step programs, but I knew I needed help. And so I had taken down names and numbers out of the sign-in book, and I started phoning people. And I got this lady who said, yes, she would be my sponsor. And she told me what I needed to do, and that was to write my food down and call her with it the next morning. And she also gave me a reading and writing assignment. And I didn't realize we were working the steps right from the beginning. That was the first step, and then we did uh, the second and the third. And, um, you know, I did what I was told, and I abstained. And I shook for three days because I was getting off of all of the sugar that I was on. And I just thanked God that I didn't have to eat. And it was a miracle. It makes me want to cry to this day. It really does because there's no way I could have done that on my own. There has to be a God that is a power greater than myself that, that really loved me a whole lot and said, okay, you're ready, you know. And so I started doing that. My husband and I, um, well, my husband got out of the military. We moved up to this area. And I have never been fond of Los Angeles, you know. I'm from Rhode Island. Um, you know, I'm not used to this many people around me and this many cars and all the freeways. And the only other time I had been in L.A. was in major rush hour, and I had this huge panic attack, you know. And I said, oh, my God, and you're moving me to Los Angeles County. Oh, my God. Well, what I did was I ran to more meetings, and I just submerged myself in meetings. Uh, and, and that really, really made my program grow. It really did. Um, you know, this business of staying, staying stopped, there is a this small, quiet voice that I hear inside of me when I want to eat more and more and more because certainly there are times that food calls me. If some of you have the experience of food never calling you, God bless you. I am not one of these people. You know, there are times it does. And usually it's not in a time of tragedy. For me, it's in those everyday things. That's what makes me hungrier than the, than the really big deals. But anyway, where was I going with that? I'm also in menopause, so this is going to go all over the place, and that's on tape, and I don't care. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, let's see. Okay. 
I've got a sponsor, work the steps, continue to work the steps. After she, my sponsor finished giving me those reading and writing assignments, uh, she got me into doing the, the four-step inventory. And she had to really kind of hit me with it a lot because she had not finished her four-step inventory. She only had a couple of more months of abstinence than I did. And we were just almost sponsoring each other, but I still took guidance from her. And, and you know, I, I, I really believe had I not finished my four-step inventory and completed my steps, I would not be standing here before you today. I really believe that if I hadn't gotten to the bottom of where all my resentments were, I would have turned to the food again. You know, and so the steps are so important to me. That constant relationship with the God of my understanding is so important to me. I had a God before I came into program. I was raised in a religion that I have no argument with. I have no problems with it. I know some people like to talk bad about it, but that's their thing and it's not mine. Because I always realized that the things that went wrong there were people that did them. You know, and so I just take what I need, leave the rest. Just as I do when I go to meetings, you know. And so anyway, but I never realized that God would take care of my food. God was for Sundays, holy days, emergencies, you know, and, and, and God is a part of every bit of my life. Um, you know, there were times that I was invited to, to parties and things like that, and I was, I was not anonymous about my, my program. So many of my friends had gone into OA. So many of them had. And a lot of them were already in, and they hadn't told me about it. And I had to work on that resentment, you know, right about that, that they hadn't told me ahead of time. But you know what? I believe I got this when I was ready. And, you know, that one, my Eskimo, my little friend, you know, that, that took me to my first meeting, um, you know, I just, every once in a while on my birthday, I'll call her. She has since moved to Arizona, but when she was living here in California, I would call her and thank her you know, for what she did for me, that she had the courage to talk to this obese person, you know, and say, if you really want to know what I'm doing in my life that's giving me this serenity during a very, very bad divorce she was going through, you know, and losing weight at the same time, she said, you know, I'll take you to that meeting. Well, that kind of courage is incredible. You know, that's, that's just God bless her. Uh, anyway, I try and do that today. In fact, when I first got into my abstinence and everything, I started doing that uh, kind of 12-stepping 12 12 people that, you know, you go right up to them on a bus or something like that. Yeah, I'm lucky I wasn't punched out because I would go up to heavy people and I would suggest that, you know, they might want to try OA, what had happened to me, and they look at me like I'm crazy. But, you know, I don't do that today. Um, you know, it's a program of attraction, I know, and I think that's very important. That's why it is important for me to share. Um, with, the, with the food thing, I was invited to different functions. I worked for the government at that time, and I can recall one party that we went to, and it was a, I detest cocktail parties to this day, but it was where they had those little tiny plates, you know, just, and I even requested a large plate. I said, you know, I need to eat a certain way, and he had food in the kitchen, in the living room, outside, and just from one area to another, constant food, and the little teeny, teeny pieces of food. Oh, my God. That is the closest I came to really not stopping. It was so bad. So the guests had not, you know, the guests of honor had not arrived. And I saw what was happening to myself. And I said to my husband, we need to leave. We need to leave now. We had been there about an hour. They had, they were just walking in the door. And we said, you know, we really need to go. And they just looked at me. Needless to say, I was never invited back to that house again. <laughs> but you know what? I abstained. And it was worth it. Um, my dad, uh, actually 24 years ago, this June 19th, my dad passed away. 
and he was dying during an airline strike. And as I said, I'm from Rhode Island, and I was able to get a flight. It's a god shot. A flight during that time. I mean, we went racing to the airport when they told us he was dying. I got back east on time. We actually lived in the um, emergency room section of the hospital in the waiting room for a week, and I abstained. You know, they had food in that cafeteria that I could eat, and I could still abstain. And that's God. And that's God in the 12 steps. And I can't tell you the times where I get down on my knees and I pray that God would help me, you know, to get through that time. And I, and, and I was able to do that because of this 12-step program. Because of the foundation you gave me, I was only about one year abstinent when that happened, you know. And, I, you know, I was carried. This program is my life raft. When I'm in crises, that the security of, of what I learned in these rooms carries me through. As I say, much easier in a lot of ways than it does in my daily life of working, you know, and dealing with people out there. Um, my mom, um, this is kind of high drama things, but, you know, it's life, too. And my mom uh, got very, very ill. Actually, about 10 years ago, she started deteriorating. And it, the progression was really rapid over the last couple of years. And there was a lot of stress and a lot of tension. And, and I clung to this program, you know, and I said, okay. I shared about it in meetings. I cried in front of you, you know. Um, when I saw the mother that I knew that I'm going to cry on the tape, oh, well. <laughs> you know, the mother that I knew um, deteriorating from that lively person that used to run my legs off, you know. Um, I can't say there weren't times the food called, but, you know, I clung to the way I was taught to eat. I do weigh and measure my food, by the way, to get into the particulars. I do weigh and measure my food. It works for me. If it doesn't work for you, fine. But for me, it does. It gives me a foundation of what, I, what feels comfortable for me. I feel the best, and it keeps my weight down. And that's why I came into these rooms. But with Mom dying, um, she was a strong lady in a lot of ways, and she was able to hang in there. My mother, by the way, was a compulsive overeater. Um, we were binge buddies. And, and I got to see what this disease does to people, you know. I got to see that. Uh, she was not obese when she died because the disease was just eating her up, you know. She had um, cirrhosis of the liver, actually. So she had, I believe, two addictions. Uh, but I know her eating habits definitely contributed to what happened to her. And, and I got to go back out there to Rhode Island uh, several times within a short period of time. And then she did pass away uh, November the uh, second um, uh, 2001 so the two-year anniversary will be November 2nd this year and you know and I got to abstain there as well you know uh, through these big things that happened um, I think you know there are times as I say that you know I see somebody having maybe a dessert or something like that sugar was my drug of choice uh, and most of the time it's hard to believe. Most of the time it does not call me. There are times that it does. And what I do is, and what my sponsor taught me years ago, is to remove myself. She says, you know what? She says, you remove yourself. If my husband is given things that are taken into the home, they don't have to be in front of my face. You know, if we don't have children at home. If we had children at home, I'd probably have to have things in perhaps in cupboards a little more. But if he's given something really, really sweet, I don't have to have it there. I don't put a bottle of booze in front of him. He doesn't need to put a, you know, a, a beautiful cake in front of me. But I certainly can handwrite it. So strange. One of the things I like to do is I like to serve things to people. At work, they have a lot of goodies around, and so I like to be the one who serves them. I think I live vicariously through this, and I don't have to eat it. People um, know today that I'm in this program. You know, that does help. 
and they they accept that and they honor me, you know, for not honor me, but they honor the fact that I don't choose to eat these things, that they don't work for me. They think I have great willpower. Let them think, you know. I've told them what the program's about, and most of them do need it, and they don't choose to go, and so that's their business. Um, with the with the food today, now this weekend has been very, very good. I love coming to these functions because, you know, I'm with people who understand what it's like. We love to talk about food. You know, we love to go to places that have very, very good food. And, you know, because I don't get a second chance. You know, it's one meal. If it's lousy, oh, that's it till the next one. That's pitiful, you know. <laughs> I don't just say, oh, that was crappy. I can order something else. No, that's it. And so I make sure it's good. And when I find something good, I, for instance, I've been going across the street and having something that I love. I've had it three times now. Okay, I'm done for a while. But, you know, <laughs> but anyway, um, my relationship with, with the God of my understanding went through some difficult times when mom was dying because I think I was very angry with God because mom was suffering so much and and I really I really wanted him to take her sooner you know and that was not my not in my hands you know I just I just couldn't stand seeing the pain she was in it was horrible it really was and and being long distance you know when I wasn't there to see her was worse and so um I, for the first time in my life, I was beginning to have doubts that there was a God. And then, you know, I just kept making believe as if, as they told me a long time ago in these rooms, you make believe as if and it will be. And so that relationship with God has become stronger again. And I'm so grateful for that. It was a great burden because of my years of being so strong in my belief to have that happen. Um, let's see. I guess I'm running out of how much more time do I have? Ten minutes? Oh, my goodness gracious. Okay, let me see if I can get into some more details and bounce all over. The I can't believe I have that much time left. I usually talk forever. Ah, I guess I haven't done this for a while. Um, my mind's going blank. <laughs> it really is. Well, I, I guess I'm just going to have to stop because I can't think of anything else to share. Okay? Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. Um, there should be an ask it basket going around. And just go ahead and write any questions that you have for either speaker or both. And we're just going to keep passing it around. But leave the questions in the box. And then when both speakers are finished, I'll go ahead and um, go through the questions. Uh, our next speaker is Maxine. Or did I, yeah, Maxine, and she's from the San Fernando Valley, and she'll speak for uh, about 25 minutes. Hi, everybody. I'm Maxine, a compulsive overeater. I came into Overeaters Anonymous in September of 1961, out of control. Um, not at my top weight, although my top weight was 192. Uh, this April, I celebrated 39 years of abstinence, and I've been at my normal weight for that length of time. Um, this chapter, thank you. We thank you. That's my higher power. Uh, this chapter that we read this excerpt from is from a chapter three of the big book called More About Alcoholism. And this chapter basically is talking about sanity and insanity. And for me, I was... Uh, until I came to this program, I was totally insane. 
And insanity means a not, not soundness of mind, or for me, insanity is believing a lie. Sanity is wholeness of mind or truth. And I never was a, a truthful person with this, uh, with this disease because I always lied about everything. And I lied about everything because I thought the truth was what you didn't want to hear. So for me, this story that we read just briefly, page 32 and 33, has to do that it says here, the delusion that we are like other people and may presently be, uh, maybe have to be smashed, that's a lie. And so we, I, up, up until that time, up until 1961, I believed that lie, that if I found the right diet, the right combination of foods, the right calories, uh, my favorite diet used to be the all-you-can-eat diet and lose weight, uh, that somehow I would wake up one day and be thin. Uh, my philosophy in life before coming to Overeaters Anonymous was I wanted to do the least amount of work and get the best results. It says here in our big book that half measures availed me nothing. Well, I heard someone say along the way that half, mail, half measures availed him something. And I did half, me, half measure it for about the two and, first two and a half years I was in this program. Uh, I did find a diet. Uh, I didn't have a sponsor, but I came to meetings. And my philosophy at that time was if I just sat in these chairs and became like a sponge, I'd get it. I would just soak it in. I didn't have to. I didn't think I had to do anything. If I was just in the presence of people who were doing it, it would happen to me. It doesn't happen that way. But I had to learn that for myself. And so for me, um, I had to finally, in 1964, find my first sponsor, who was also an alcoholic and as well as a compulsive overeater, who said to me that if I wanted total sobriety, because she was using the A terms, if I want to be sober or abstinent for a lifetime, one day at a time, then I had to work these steps. Because without these steps, OA is just a cheap diet club. So I was always interested in my physical part of my disease. I didn't even know I had two other thirds to worry about. So most of, the, of those wonderful things out there that they're offering people to lose weight have to do with the physical. And there's nothing wrong with the physical. We, our primary purpose is to, is to abstain and lose weight, to uh, obtain and maintain our normal weight, and we can't deny that. But on the other hand, I wasn't, I wasn't concerned. Just let's get the blubber off my body and I'll worry about the rest later. But my, my sponsor wouldn't let me do that. So for me, more about alcoholism is that I had to learn the truth about my disease. And the truth is that disease will, this disease will get me when I'm the least looking. I think I've known all the tricks of this disease. It isn't the food. It's this between my ears. This time it will be different. I can eat those. I ate them three years ago. It didn't bother me. Uh, this, if I eat it standing up, it doesn't count. If, if I eat it in the bathroom, it doesn't count. Um, I had all kinds of things. Uh, and so for me, I had to give all of that up. This doesn't apply to me. And so I had to believe the truth. And the truth was that I was a compulsive overeater and I would never be a normal eater. I was depressed. Because I thought once, you know, my attitude was, 
Once I diet and get thin, I can go back to eating what I ate before and still be thin. What a lie. But that's what my mind tells me. This, for me and for every other compulsive anything, is a mental disease. The food doesn't jump out of the refrigerator into my mouth. I have to have a thought first before that happens. So for me, working the steps are really important. And I learned very early on what, how the steps were laid out. I wanted, at the beginning I thought, well, I can work the steps cafeteria style. I can take the first part of step one, the last part of step 12, and maybe the sprinkling of step four and five. Don't even talk to me about eight or nine. I, I didn't get anywhere. I didn't, I didn't lose weight. I, I was the same bitchy, controlling, manipulative, perfectionistic person I was before I got here. So I had to learn to do it from 1 to 12. What does step 1 tell me? Step 1 tells me that's my problem. I'm a compulsive over here. Duh, my life is unmanageable. Okay. I knew that when I went to my first meeting. What can I do about that? I've tried everything myself. I can't do anything else. Well, the second step says there is a solution that I had to come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And I didn't have a power greater than myself. I mean, I knew there was powers for people like Pat, and my mother had a power greater than herself. I'm not quite so sure if it was greater than herself, but as a child I thought she was greater than herself. Um, but um, she said, well, do you believe I have a power greater than myself? I said, yes. She said, well, just believe in me, and then you'll believe in my higher power, and that was good enough for me. I, I didn't want to have to even go there, except that she, I did everything she told me to do. And then she said, this, this program required of me surrender, which is the third step. I do that, I don't know how many times a day I have to say the third step, because I think I know better than God. I think that in this situation, I've got it under control. I'm, I can see the outcome, and I'm going to get it done, and then I say, who's in charge? And then I have to say, whoops. So for me, I had to learn to turn things over. And recently, just the other day, I was fretting about something. And uh, I, heard it, I heard the thing in my head, don't fret. I'll take care of everything. Now, that wasn't my, my mind. That was my intuition, which is my direct line to God. So for me, if I remember to turn it over to God, but then do the footwork. So the first three steps of this program don't, don't require me to do anything really of consequence, of action. They're all, mental, they're all mental steps. But for me, the fourth step is the first step of action. It requires me to write, to find out my defects of character, to find out the things I feel guilty about and depressed about and resentful about and um, whatever about. And most of my life was all negative anyhow, so it didn't make any difference. So for me, the, the first three steps are mental, and then the, re, the next nine steps are the, are the program in action. And so for me, it was the first time I decided at that time in my recovery that I was going to do this thing 100% because I knew I didn't have another binge in me. I don't have to tell you what my eating history was like. You've all had it. You probably had more eating history. Oh, I know you've had if you've been around less time than I have. And I, and I was, I yo-yoed and yo-yoed and yo-yoed like Pat, but at the end I just yo-yoed. I just, I, got to, I didn't have anything left. 
So I knew this was my last shot, and that's what my, my sponsor said to me. It's either this or you die. Because I can, this, we see it all around us today, people dying from this disease. And I knew, I, well, I was young, I didn't really think I was going to die. This, this, this disease will kill me a lot slower than maybe alcohol, but dead is dead. You know, so for me, I had to, to, to enhance this program, or grasp this program, like my life depended on it. So I wrote an inventory, took me a year and a half. The first one, I, I started to type it because I wanted it to be perfect. Never got past the third page. The second, my, my next inventory that I finished and wrote, I carried around with me everywhere because I thought if anyone found my inventory, they thought they would have found the great American novel and whatever. And so I was scared. I had a lot of fear. And in fact, I was so fearful of giving my fifth step away that I didn't give it to my OE, my OE sponsor. I gave it to a man in AA that I knew I would never see again because I thought the things I had written about were so shameful. And you want to know what the biggest shameful thing in my inventory was? That it had premarital sex. Whoa, big deal. Uh, so for me, that but that was a big deal. I remember coming home from that inventory and feeling like I had lost 20 pounds. I had I had finally let go of all of the baggage I was carrying around with me. So five and six were were uh, four and five were kind of bad. Then six says, are you really entirely ready to get your defective character removed? I said, yes, yes, but I lied. Because I really wanted to hang on to criticism and judgment and gossip. I mean, those are kind of juicy. And uh, I really didn't have any way of thinking that I could ever exist without doing those kind of things. So for me, I kind of just skimmed over the top of that and went to eight and nine. And as, as, as well as being a compulsive overeater, I was a compulsive shoplifter. And so I not only uh, ate every, uh, you know, ate compulsively every day, but I stole a lot of what I ate in stores and then shoplifted a lot of clothes from department stores and drug stores and anything else that I wanted to shoplift from. So for me, when I gave my fourth and fifth step away, the, the, the desire to really eat compulsively or to binge was lifted. And thank God, by the grace of God, in this length of time, 39 years, I have not had to steal. And that was, that was a blessing. It was a blessing because I think the stealing in a lot of ways um, bothered me more. I felt more guilty about it because I didn't need to steal. I had the money. But the bottom line after I did writing about it was I didn't think I was worthy to have what those things were. And I really had a real good rationalization for it. If I went in and needed a blouse and I couldn't decide between the red one and the green one, I bought the red one and stole the green one, and then my rationalization was they made enough money on the red one so that I didn't have to worry about the stealing. Mental, yes, okay. So for me, my, the eighth and ninth step were really important because I had a lot of financial amends to make. And the financial amends were difficult. I bet in 1964, I didn't know anyone who had made a financial amend. Um, I didn't know if they, when you went back to the store and wanted to pay for the things that you had stolen, if they were going to um, arrest you or not. But I was willing to go to jail to recover at that point in time. And uh, fortunately, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I lost my, lost my word. I wasn't arrested. Uh, and um, that, again, was something that was so freeing. 
I realized as I got rid of the things that were bothering me, making corrections in my personality through the help of my higher power, that I felt more like, I don't know, a normal person, whatever that is. But I didn't have to keep schlepping all of this stuff around with me that I hated about myself. And so the, the, the 10 steps is what I do on a, still do on a daily basis in the 11th and 12th step. And those things, those maintenance steps, keep me stopped all the time. Um, part of my history in this program is and from 1975 to 1985, I left the Fellowship Overeaters Anonymous. I was in a spiritual instruction and I was under a spiritual obedience uh, to my uh, teacher and she told me that uh, I was getting too egotistical and she said I needed to learn humility so she told me I needed to leave and I did and in those 10 years I abstained without a meeting, without the big book, without anything because I had the 12 steps in here. I didn't, ha I didn't need to hear them in rooms. I didn't need to hear anything else. I heard my higher power and I, I had this, I had this, and this kept me sober, abstinent, and uh, on a spiritual path. But in 1984, in December of 1984, my daughter uh, developed toxic shock syndrome, syndrome and almost died. And during that time, uh, we didn't know what the diagnosis was. We thought she had appendicitis. We thought she had food poisoning. She had no blood pressure. It was very, very scary. And I was still in touch with a lot of people who were in OA. And uh, I called several of them on the phone and asked them to pray for uh, uh, Robin and myself and my family. And two of my very good friends from my home meeting came and sat with me that night and prayed with me that night. And so fortunately, by God's grace, she did recover fully. And um, I was so overwhelmed by the, by the love and the support I got from those women, I decided to go back to my home meeting just to thank the people in that home meeting for praying for us. And when I walked back into those rooms, I knew God had brought me back to OA. And I'm very grateful for that. And um, I know that staying stopped is a one-day-at-a-time thing for me. Um, the things I do that stay stopped is I keep digging within myself to find out my core issues. Um, we always heard this, this tried expression in the meetings, it's like peeling the onion, and this one I think, when I've, I've finally gotten there, God reveals something else to me. And I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot about myself, more than I ever thought I needed to learn, but it has, it has deepened my belief in my higher power. It's um, made me realize that I am responsible for everything I think, everything I do and everything I say because I'm learning that everything begins with me and everything ends with me and that my life, the life I have is equal to the uh, choices that I make. This program is full of choices and full of decisions and if I don't continue to make the right choices and the right decisions for myself then my life will be different than it is today. And so for myself this program has taught me to be personally responsible for myself and for my actions and for my thoughts and for my decisions and for my choices. So now, when I, I, I used to blame all you guys out there for what was wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with you guys out there. The old expression, if you're pointing your finger at someone else, you're pointing back at me. So it begins with me and it ends with me. So if I'm having trouble with you, it's because I identify something in you about me that I have to work on. And so it is a, it's a, uh, for me, a journey and personal responsibility and getting to know who I am. 
and God keeps revealing that to me. Uh, and I have to keep believing the truth and not the lies that my mind um, feeds me. The reason I know that I need a higher power is this disease lies in my mind or lays in my mind where there it's, it's there and I can't expect to solve the, my problem where the disease is and that's why I need something greater than myself that's why I need a higher power that's why I need support and that's why I need people to tell me the truth if I'm off base that's why I need to write on a daily basis I still write my food down every day I weigh and measure most of my food I stay personally responsible for that I don't get crazy about it I always say that my abstinence has been, I have back-to-back imperfect abstinence because I was a perfectionist. And I once had 14 months of, excuse me, 10 months of, see how that can crawl in there? Uh, I had 10, uh, 10 months of perfect, perfect abstinence, and I broke that abstinence on a piece of raw cauliflower. And I, I, it took me a week to decide whether I'd broken my abstinence at that time, and I finally decided yes, because it was causing me so much pain and agony in the very early years. And I decided I would never do that to myself again. And, I, and what had motivated me to, do, to not say I'd broken my abstinence was I wanted that first candle so badly. And I decided that the goal of this program was not to get candles. The goal of this program was to abstain and develop, and, and develop and evolve emotionally and spiritually as well as staying physically fit and well. And so for me, uh, for many, many, many years, I never took a candle because that wasn't important to me. The important thing to me was, did I get better this year emotionally and spiritually? That's what keeps me stopped. What keeps me stopped is being emotionally and spiritually better than I was maybe the week before or the month before. I like to, uh, people always ask me how you managed to abstain for such a long time. And I like to quote A.G., who was um, one of the first uh, men in uh, Overeaters Anonymous. And he spoke on a tape with uh, Rosanna and myself a couple of years ago at a birthday party. And he says, I can guarantee you, he's from Texas and he has that drawl. And he says, I can guarantee that everybody in this room can have as much abstinence as I have. You just got to do two things. You got to abstain today and don't die. (laughs) Thank you for letting me share. Okay. Well, now we can um, take questions from the Ask It Basket, and I see that it's coming up. for Maxine, and it says, uh, what did you say to the department stores when you made the amends for stealing? Do you want to come? Or? Okay. Um, I told the department stores that I had stolen merchandise from them. I came with a check in my hand. I was told to ask before I came to make an appointment with the manager of the store, not to speak to a salesperson or a flunky on the floor. And I made all these arrangements, and I, I drove over. I was in the valley. I drove over to, over to uh, Miracle Mile, where the Broadway department store was. It's no longer there. It's a big hole in the ground, probably from a lot of customers like me. But um, I drove over there, and the manager had been called away on an emergency. 
And so I wanted an assistant manager and finally got them, and I told them who I was. I was in a 12-step program. This was part of my recovery, that I had, this is what I figured out that I had stolen from them. They didn't want to take my check. And I said, you've got to take my check. It's part, you've got to take it. So I forced my check on them. And then they took me from department to department because I was the first person in 1964 who had ever come in person to return things. They said they've gotten checks anonymously in the mail and they had also gotten merchandise left in the front of their door anonymously. It, it, so it's scary, but it was worth it. I have, I have uh, people who have stolen recently. Mine was kind of a three years or four years, maybe ten years back. But um, the stores are usually very good about it. Uh, I, of all my experience of helping people uh, with financial amends, I, have known, I don't know anybody who has ever been arrested. Give us several questions, okay. and then you'll be getting up and down a lot, so it'll just well, work. Yeah. All right. And go between the two okay. of you. Okay. Are you answering the question? Paul Young. That's true. And thank you for reminding me. Um, this question's for both of you, or either of you, because uh, it's not addressed to, you know, for a name. It just says, what if my fourth step inventory, uh, if I am totally and rigorously honest, could cost me easily $20,000 or more, and I don't have $20,000 to cover it? My name is Pat. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Pat. You know, one of the things I, I found out because I too had to make financial amends was um, I can recall making financial amends to my mom. I had borrowed money from her. And also, I think even worse than that was uh, people back east that I had borrowed $2,000 from, and $2,000 to me was probably like 20 nowadays. Um, and I could not make that all at once. What I did was I told them what I could make, the payment that I could make, and I would make that payment every single payday to them until that money was all paid off. And if that was the best that I could do, and of course they accepted it. So that's what I did. I, I did, I wrote them, uh, you know, a letter and told them. Uh, if, if it was a local person that I owed the amends to, then, you know, I would go to them face to face and say, this is what I can do. But that $2,000 one really stuck in my mind because it was so overwhelming to me. We were so financially bankrupt, literally, at that time. But I could make $10 a month payments. I was paid monthly at that time. And I did that until it was paid off. And as I got further on down the line, closer to the, the total amount, I was able to make a little bit larger amount. And when I did that, because I was working and saving a little bit more money, then I did those larger amounts. But for a long while, it was $10 a month. Did you, did you want, want to answer? answer? Perfect. Okay. <laughs> and this one's not addressed to anyone specific. Um, is the fourth? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> is the fourth step in step ten different in that the fourth step is a moral inventory and the tenth step is your daily work? So they want to know if there's a difference between the two. Uh, I'm Maxine. I think um, people get very hung up on that word moral. 
Uh, I think for me, the inventory is the stuff that you're carrying around that you don't like about yourself or what you've done to other people. The tenth step is basically a continuation of the fourth step. Uh, on page 86 of the big book, there's a formula of the questions you ask yourself at night uh, about how your day went. Uh, I've, I've, I did that for so long. Now I just ask myself two questions at night. What did I do today that I, I, I didn't like, and what did I do today that I did right? And usually that those questions come out, and somewhere along the line you have to make an amend, usually a personal amend of some kind. So, uh, or I have to do some more writing about it, but it is a continuation. It isn't as extensive as, um, as, a, as a four step, but it continues to have us dig all the time. And I think that's the, the real value of the, of the 10 step. What do you do on a daily basis to maintain your normal body size? I'm Pat. I'm a compulsive overeater. As I shared, you know, until I went blank on you folks, um, I still weigh and measure my food. Um, I eat, you know, I eat pretty much the same kind of meals that uh, I did when I first came into these rooms. Uh, there may be a little bit more leeway with the kinds of things I have in the foods, but I'm still abstaining from sugar. And I still work my steps, you know. I still ask God to take it if the food calls me. I ask God to please keep a very, very small prayer. God, please keep me abstinent. And I go about my business and I keep busy. But um, my body size is important to me. You know, it's a threefold disease. But for me, I came into these rooms to get thin and to stay thin. And I am so grateful today that that is the way it is. Recently, I did choose to lose a little bit more weight. And, and I feel more comfortable at this weight than I was maintaining for a while. And that meant that I needed to stop going to restaurants that gave me larger portions because I do belong to the clean plate of America. I don't bring my scale to the restaurant. And so, um, you know, I've, I've chosen to get back into being a little bit cleaner with that, and that really works for me. It really does. No big secret to this, you know. You eat less, you weigh less. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a way, it's a numbers game. It's, it's exactly what Pat said. For me, I, I still write my food down. I write down the numbers. Uh, I know I can eat so many calories a day and maintain my weight. And that's what I keep between there. I also, uh, keep track of how much physical activity I have. Uh, and I, um, I, I, it is, it's just being personally responsible. And I weigh once a week. And I, um, I have friends who said, oh, I can't get on the scale. The scale has become my God. The scale is, is personal responsibility. And for me, I need to know where I am because my mind will find another way to, to, to lie to me. So for me, it's, it's still weighing and measuring. And when I'm home, I don't weigh and measure when I'm outside of the house. Uh, I, um, I, write, I keep track of everything. And I do weigh once a, I, uh, I weigh once a week. This next question is kind of an adjunct to this last question. Can you talk more about the specifics of your food plan? Like what you eat at breakfast and lunch and dinner perhaps? Okay. E either one. 
My name is Pat. I'm a compulsive overeater. I have to keep reminding myself. Um, my food, you want to know the actual food? Is that what the person wants to know? Okay. Sure, I'll tell you exactly what I eat. For breakfast, you know, for the last several years, I absolutely love my breakfast. I have uh, oat bran, yogurt, you know, just a bowl of oat bran, and it's measured, uh, yogurt and uh, sugar-free, and an apple. I love apples better than any other fruit, and so that's my breakfast. For lunch, I have, um, let's see, protein, vegetable, and a fruit. I don't like two salads a day as a general rule, so I have, you know, one cup of mixed vegetables, one piece of fruit, and four ounces of protein. And then for dinner time, it's uh, two cups of salad, two tablespoons of dressing, a cup of mixed vegetables. And the mixed vegetables I personally like at this time are asparagus and, and, um, and corn. But I uh, know corn. Ooh, I hate corn. Uh, asparagus and carrots and, uh, you know, four ounces of protein. Um, when I first started, you know, working this food plan that I have today, it suggested that you could have four ounces or two pieces on the chicken. So, you know... They did, to me, I read two pieces of chicken, so I got big bird, you know, these huge breasts. And I have two of these breasts, you know, that you practically have to you know, use two hands to lift the plate. But as I lost the weight, lost the larger amount of my weight, I mean, it was still so much less than what I was eating. I was able to go ahead and realize that that was too much for me, and I went down to one of the big bird's breasts. And then I got down to more sensible portions, you know, of, of what was best for me to maintain the smaller body. But uh, that's the way it is for me. And my food does vary. I can eat beef, pork, chicken, fish, whatever. I have my favorites. I do like chicken and fish the best today. Beef was everything to me. And there's nothing wrong with it. And I also can fry, broil, you know, whatever I wish. But I do prefer broil. And so these things have happened. They've evolved, you know, with my food plan. It's a really healthy food plan. I never got sick on it. And I think that's been very important to me. Well, as many years as I've been on the program, I've almost had as many food plans. Um, there's, there's no magic in any one food plan. I have, I was, I was, uh, I did the gray sheet for 14 years. Uh, I was a vegan for 17 years. Of those of you who don't know what a vegan is, that's a vegetarian who does not eat any um, animal product, no uh, eggs or cheese. Uh, right now, I'm, uh, I'm kind of a, just a moderate eater. Uh, I eat very much like um, Pat does. It's, I keep it simple. Um, my, my variation for breakfast, if you want to talk about food, is a half a cup of uh, fat-free yogurt, a quarter of a cup of cottage cheese, and four ounces of blueberries, and a tablespoon of flaxseed meal, and a half a cup of fiber one, sometimes. Lunch is always usually um, a small chicken breast and a salad, which I always take to work. And dinner is a protein, a vegetable, and a, sal- a big salad. I'm a big salad eater. I eat two salads a day. I also have a snack uh, after dinner. And uh, sometimes I have two snacks during the day. Sometimes I have one uh, after, after lunch, or I have it with my lunch. And uh, I find I, I try, have tried a lot of things. I, I think each of us have to find out what works. There isn't any magic in any combination. Uh, of foods. I think it's what, what you, some people like to, I love eating the same thing every day. If I like it, when I was first a carbohydrate abstainer on the gray sheet, I ate a hamburger patty and an orange for 10 years for breakfast. 
And the reason I ate that was because I was afraid if I didn't eat red meat for breakfast, I'd die before lunch. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. It's just for me, if it works for you and you're losing weight or you're maintaining your weight, that's your thing. There's a, there's a lot. We're all individuals. Not all of us are round, you know, round pegs and, and square or obtuse holes. So it isn't the eating plan that's the magic. It's the steps in your higher power. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. This one is not addressed to either of you, but... Um... <laughs> okay, Pat and Maxine. <laughs> um, as an old-timer, uh, please share your experience, strength, and hope regarding, uh, quote, the road getting narrower, dot, dot, dot. Uh, that is old ideas, attitudes that no longer work, and how you practically walk through these growing pains? It's a good question. Very good question. They're all good. Okay. The road getting there, and it does. It has for me. I can only speak for myself. I'm Pat. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, old ideas and attitudes that no longer... Well, I told you about my big bird story, so that that's that no longer works for me. It really Narrow doesn't. Bird. Narrow bird. Yeah, much more. More like your little chicken breast. <laughs> And that works very well. Uh, old ideas, I like that, and attitudes. You know, abstaining all these years, I've seen my, my attitude towards people, places, and things change. And those of you who are from the South, they hear and hear me share regularly, know that I do still complain occasionally about people and everything like that because people didn't do it my way. And, you know, and I did a lot of eating in the old days about that. But once I came to program and that option wasn't there, I would just complain instead, you know, be verbal about it. Um, it is amazing how, you know, my, my broad-mindedness will, will come into it now, and I gained that through this program. Um, I used to get hungry over my attitudes. And today, I would much rather feel more peaceful and serene around people doing their own thing and not get so hungry. It just works. I don't know if that you under, anybody understands that. I see a few nodding heads, so I'm grateful to hear, see that. Uh, those old ideas didn't work. I couldn't make people do it my way. I couldn't make people join the program. I have so many family members who are grossly obese, as I was. I was called grossly obese. You know, uh, 230 pounds at my height, I was grossly obese. Double what I am today, you know. And so I could not drag those people into the program. I had to let that go. Let that go and let them be and let their God take care of them because everybody in this room has a higher power, whether you choose to believe it or not. And that's what I believe for myself. My God led me here when I was ready. When each one of those people are ready, if they ever are, their higher power will lead them too. That has given me so much peace of mind and left me a lot less hungry. Thank you. Well, the road gets narrower um, as your body gets smaller, the food gets smaller. So that's, that's the narrow part of the physical. The narrow part of the spiritual and the um, emotional is that, for me, it's had to look into myself. Uh, and I was always, I always knew what was better for you. My old ideas was, I knew what you should do and why aren't you doing it? Uh, I had to learn to be, accept that you were who you were because that's who you were supposed to be. And the more I could accept you, the more I could accept myself. 
and I used to try to convince people about things they didn't want to they didn't want to hear or they didn't want to do and rightfully so and when I heard the expression a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still works so you can never I can never change anybody else it's hard enough to change me with my higher power let alone try to train somebody else who doesn't have 12 steps doesn't have doesn't seem to have a higher power uh, wouldn't be seen in one of these rooms and then my mind thinks that because I say something to them or think they tell them where they should go uh, that they're going to do it so the more I stopped trying to change you I could use that energy then to change myself just to let you know these next few questions are rather similar but I'm just going to go ahead and read them one by one anyway and it's kind of like that one uh, that question there have you ever faced a life-threatening illness and stayed abstinent and how did you fight fear My name is Pat, I'm a compulsive overeater, and um, there have been scares. I have not had, thank God, a life-threatening illness for myself, but for um, a couple of times it, I had, they found lumps, you know, a lump in my breast, and the period waiting for that, you know, to, to be looked at was just terrifying. But as I said earlier, when I was sharing, um, I cling to this program when things like that happen. I get cleaner, I get tighter with my abstinence. Um, and then speaking about life-threatening illnesses with my dad and with my mom, as I did earlier, again, you know, it just, it gave me a center. It gave me serenity to, with the food and with my emotions, you know, to know that God was taking care of me no matter what. And um, so, you know, it's a threefold illness that we have here, the spiritual, the physical, and the emotional. And all of that works so well for me when I'm confronting a really, really big crisis like Dad dying. Dad's was a ripped heart, his heart muscles ripped. Uh, with Mom, she has cirrhosis of the liver, her kidneys were failing. You know, all of it really connected to this disease. And, and it just reminded me how much stronger I have to be working in this program. Okay. Well, thank God, personally, I haven't had uh, to face a threatening, a life-threatening illness, but I do with my daughter. And for me, it was almost worse to see someone you love going through something like that rather than yourself. And for me, I find now that when I, when I'm in a situation like that, uh, I lose my, I lose my appetite. I mean, I just absolutely have, I can't hardly swallow, which is really novel for a compulsive overeater. But um, it's a. You know, I used to think that once you had a program like this and once you had a higher power, that whatever would happen to you, I would just float over the top of it. My feet would not touch the ground. I would be so spiritual it wouldn't bother me. B.S. I mean, that's not true. Life, life me up and down and up and down. And for me, nothing. food doesn't fix it. Food is my problem. It's not my solution. It's not the thing I really, I, that really gives me comfort anymore. What gives me comfort is the support I, and love I have for my family and my friends and, and asking God to get me through this a day at a time, sometimes a minute at a time, whatever. And I'm dealing with a 95-year-old mother now, God bless her, who is a pain in the you-know-where. Uh, and so 
but my job is to be of service and my job is to know that she's my teacher everything in life I know is to teach me something and I have to be aware of what it is because I want to finally learn it so I don't have to come back and do it again It may be a repeat, I'm not sure, but um, I'll let you decide. What do you do on a daily basis to keep spiritually fit? Yeah. Pat again, compulsive overeater. Um, for myself, when I get up in the morning, I'll kind of tell you exactly what I do. Uh, I have to spend quiet time with my higher power. It starts off my day properly. When I first came in program, I wasn't doing that. I was just rushing into my day, and it didn't work for me. I would go off tense. And so I find that for myself, I get up earlier in the morning than, than some. Some people get up earlier than I do. I get up at 4.45, and um, I have to be at work by 8 o'clock. And so I have the time to, to sit there, and I spend usually about a half an hour or so. And I do some praying out loud. My prayer out loud to God is just as I'm talking to you. You know, I repeat the first three steps. Uh, I do a little bit of reading. I like the uh, For Today book, and uh, I read the page for that. And then just do a little bit of reading, maybe a paragraph in the big book. Um, and then I do some writing. I do a gratitude list to God every day. It's something I learned years ago in a retreat that I went to. And I write three things I'm grateful for. And one of them is always the gifts of my abstinence and my sanity because they are such gifts for me. You know, I just am so grateful. And the other two can be whatever strikes my fancy that day and a short letter to God. Now, that's evolved. It started out smaller than that. When I did start spending that, that time speaking to God, you know, it started out much shorter than that. And it's just kind of evolved, and I'm comfortable with what I'm doing today. And I've never been one to do really deep, you know, TM or anything like that. But I found that it was really good for me to have just a few minutes of quiet time listening to God instead of me talking all the time. Just that little bit of time that tries to get, you know, myself quiet and then just try and hear what he has to say. And it can be no more than maybe three or four minutes, you know. I know some people go, not 20. Well, no, it's about three or four minutes. And I'm grateful that I can do that today, and it is enough. And then throughout the day, when I find myself troubled, because I have an active life, um, I have little things around me in my, my workplace, my cube. And uh, one of them is, be still and know that I am God. And that gets me stopped right away when I see that little thing. Sometimes I'm running amok, and I don't stop and look, and I'm going nuts. And, and then I'll come back to that spot and then look at that. And it, it just gives me that peace again. So... Um, that's pretty much what I do. Mm -hmm. There you go. I do something very similar. I get up uh, in the morning early. Um, I have several um, spiritual books that I read out of. Uh, every single morning I write. Um, I may have uh, questions that I need to write on. I, I, am, uh, I also have a spiritual teacher who gives me assignments, and I do those. Um, I have a I have a list of prayers that I do. Uh, I also uh, sit and 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 am quiet. For me, it is the hardest thing I have to do in the whole day because it's very hard for me to still my mind. And um, I've learned that um, my answers come through my intuition, 
they're my messenger from God. And if I'm not quiet and aware, the message comes and leads, and I haven't heard it. So for me, uh, and also during the day, I, ha- I um, when I, as I said earlier, if I'm uptight or something isn't going right or I'm frustrated, um, I will ask myself the question, who's in charge? And it immediately brings me back to, to the consciousness that I need. And um, in this in in this time I've been in the program, I have um, I, I didn't, as I said earlier, have a higher power. And I've been kind of like a pilgrim, trying to find a higher power for myself that I could really relate to, because the higher power of, of my um, uh, religion uh, did not I, I didn't feel any connection to it. And now I realize that religion and spirituality are two different things. And so for me, I have found um, a spiritual center that I find myself comfortable with. And I think everybody has to find that for themselves. Um, for me, spirit is not tied up so much in the dogma. It's, it's tied up in, the, in my soul. So um, I do everything that I need to do on a daily basis. And then some days, it's just out the window. It's gone. I've done everything I'm supposed to do, and it's it's in air somewhere. And that's okay because I'm human. And um, to imply and that, I don't know about Pat, that either one of us do this thing perfectly and do it every day, I think would, would be less than honest. So I just wanted to add that for those people who aren't here and who are thinking that there are two people sitting up here with halos on. <laughs> We have three questions left. I'm just trying to moderate, moderate the time as well. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Got the mic backwards. How have you remained abstinent when the obsession strikes? And it's for either or both of you. Again, I'm Pat, compulsive reader. Um, one of the things I mentioned earlier really, really works for me, and I'll still repeat that again, is that little quiet prayer. God keep me abstinent, and then I get busy. Um, my first sponsor used to say that to me. You know, she said, just keep yourself busy. Remove yourself, you know, from from the um, the item that perhaps is calling you. But that physical busyness, uh, the other thing that really works too, and I'm terrible about using the phone, because I've had, my sponsor I have today is wonderful. I didn't even get to talk about her in my sharing because my mind went blank. I've had my sponsor for about 18 years now. And she is just wonderful. I call her long distance. I live in Torrance. She lives in Yucca Valley. And, you know, I will call her, and once in a while I'll get her home. Even if I don't get her home, I'll use her phone name. And I'll put it all out there. Oh, my God, the food's calling me, and here's what's going on. Because normally, for me, there's something going on. You know, I'm a compulsive overeater. When there's something that I'm obsessing about, there's usually something that's going on with me. And so I'll get all of my stuff out share it with her vent and 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 then go about my business and one day at a time not compulsively overeat and i know it's a gift i know it's a blessing and it comes from me working the steps and sharing with other people and not keeping secrets not making believe it's not really happening because my god i've got 25 years of abstinence this shouldn't happen to me that's crap you know i am human and, and i don't believe anybody 
can say that something doesn't cause, that they don't have that, that little obsession every once in a while to, I don't even like that word obsession so much, but that, that calling, the food calling me. Because it does. It does. And it, and it does leave. That's what my first sponsor used to say as well though. He used to say, this too shall pass. And I used to say, but when? Her name was Mary Ellen. But when, Mary Ellen, when? She said, it will pass. Don't worry. Because it would be just really, just eating into me. And I didn't have to eat it, though. Thank God. There you go. Um, I learned early on that the obsession or the compulsion is very much like the ocean. If you look out at the ocean when you're at the beach, and it looks really, really peaceful and calm and flat out there. Now, all of a sudden, as the water gets close to the shore, you see this thing rising up, which is this big, huge wave, and that's the obsession and the compulsion. And it gets higher and higher and higher, and then all of a sudden, it just crashes to the shore and flattens out again. That's just how the obsession and the compulsion is. It seems to come out of nowhere, but we know it comes from a mind or an incident. But then it's so strong, and you think, I can't stand it. I've got to go get something to eat. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And the thing is, you gotta, you gotta outlast it. And so early on, I started making plans A, B, and C. I would either call, I would either get busy, I would either go take a walk, I would either go take a bath or a shower, or as a last resort, I would lock myself in the bedroom and wouldn't come out till morning. And in the morning, I'd wake up and I was not hungry. So I learned early on that it's, it's, it's time, and, or as I would sit down and I would write. It, it, it's, it's a matter of time. The obsession does not last that long when you know how it, how it functions. And it does rise up, but then it, where does it go to? Exactly to the place it came from. Nowhere. What do you tell a newcomer? What? <laughs> <laughs> She's coming back. <laughs> when a newcomer does approach me at a meeting, you know, I, I first of all I let them know how much I'm so grateful that they're there. Because if it wasn't for the new, am I not talking loud enough? Okay. I just let them know how grateful I am that they're there. That's the first thing. Because if it wasn't for the newcomers, you know, they're the lifeblood of this program. I need you people to keep coming back. To give me, you know, I get so much from the newcomer when they share, and I let them know that. Um, I tell them how I work my program. That's all I can share with them. You know, I don't give advice. I just tell them this is the way I do it. And if they do ask me to have them be their sponsor, I say this is the way it was shared with me. I share this with you. And then, you know, we set a time for them to call on a daily basis. I still do that with the people I sponsor. And we go from there. It doesn't talk about sponsoring here, but it kind of flows flows into it, I think. Here we go. I tell a sponsor, I, I, I tell the newcomer that it works. And, and, you, really, and, and you really need to, um, to hang around to see how it works. Because most newcomers uh, come in eating, confused. And I tell them to be gentle with themselves because being compulsive, they want to know everything right away and they want to know it yesterday. And for... Um, I tell them there's hope here, and uh, to, to, to find somebody whose story you identify with, find somebody who's recovering, to find a sponsor, and um, 
I think for every newcomer it's different. I think if somebody walks through the doors, they have, they, this is kind of like their last great hope. And so for me, to offer the newcomer hope of recovery, I think for me is the most important thing. I think you've covered everything else. I'm going to um, kind of let you know where I'm at, and maybe you guys can help me. There are a couple questions left, and we're at 10 to uh, 4, which is uh, really when uh, the workshop's supposed to end. So I don't know if you want to go ahead and finish the last two or just go ahead and end. Just close? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, so what we'll do is we'll just take a, a moment of uh, meditation to think about those who are still suffering in and out of the program. And then um, we'll meet down here in the front in a circle and do the third step prayer. Thank you.